0: So our text is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and it's uh, somewhat familiar, but it, it is, uh, it's just pretty shocking in terms of what it describes. So we're going to read verses 1 to 7, and, uh, and this is Paul uh, writing. He says, Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial... And then to us, in keeping with God's will. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving." This is the word of the Lord today for you, his church, and may the Spirit of God come upon us now in such a way that we would be formed, not according to the values of our culture, but according to the values of our God given to us in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So now that Lee and I are empty nesters, uh, we have spent a lot more time thinking about uh, retirement in terms of our finances and our money, and even our uh, estate planning. So, uh, you know, you can't take it with you, uh, so you have to decide who's going to get it uh, when you're gone. So we've had a lot of conversations about who will receive the vast uh, Swanson family holdings uh, at our demise, and right now, everything is going to Kaylee. Um, John David and Alex are kind of making a play to try to get back in, but we'll uh, we'll see. I'll update you on that later. But I wanted to share with you a little bit about another man. His name is Russell Herman. He lived in St. Louis and and he also did some estate planning work early in his life. He was a carpenter. He was involved in construction in the St. Louis area, and I'm not sure what motivated him, but he came up with this whole estate plan and what he was going to leave to who and so forth. And unfortunately, Uh, He died, uh, what you would say it would be prematurely. He died at 67, far younger than he thought. But the good news was he had a plan. So a few days after the memorial service, the attorney gathers the family to hear uh, how he wants his assets to be distributed. And it was really quite uh, shocking. So they sit down and they discover uh, from this attorney, A, that Mr. Herman had left $2 billion to the city of East St. Louis, for housing and infrastructure projects that he thought had been overlooked. And so that was uh, not something they saw coming. He left $1.5 billion to the state of Illinois for roadways that he had always believed to be subpar. He just never liked the roads in Illinois, so he thought he'd help out with that. Then he left $2.5 billion to the National Forestry Service because he and his family had often traveled for family vacations to our national parks. So he left a bunch of money. Um, to the national uh, forest system. And then, again, shockingly, he leaves a billion dollars to the United States government for debt retirement. Who, who does that, right? So the fam- imagine the family sitting in the attorney's office right now, and their minds are spinning. A, they had no idea that he had such love for East St. Louis. They didn't know that he really loved these governmental infrastructure pro, uh, projects. But even more than that, they didn't know he had that much money. The guy's a carpenter. They're like, how in the world did that happened? And oh, by the way, he didn't leave any of it to us, right? So in the attorney's office, it's just chaos, right? So the attorney finally is like, settle down, settle down. He said that there is a problem with the will. He says to the family, I've done some extensive analysis of Mr. Herman's holdings, and as it turns out, he actually has no assets. His one remaining asset is a 1983 Oldsmobile, and he's left that to you three children to divide evenly. So Mr. Herman had wonderful intent. I think in his heart of heart, he probably wanted to give money to all those places, but in the end, there was no money behind it at all. And I think it's a pretty good object lesson for First Presbyterian Church of Orlando today as we continue in this series on the bride, the beautiful bride, understanding the church in this post-pandemic world, that generosity is one of the primary ways we bear witness to the world of the way God has lavished his grace on us. And so as you think about it, in terms of the object lesson, you know, I, I actually have really high regard for all of you. And I believe that in your heart of hearts, you are a lot like like Mr. Herman. I honestly believe that all of you wanna be generous. I think you really wanna give money to the church. I think there's something in you. If you believe in God, you think that's a good thing to try to help a little bit with the extension of the kingdom of God. But the cold truth is, by the time you get to the end of the month or the end of the year, You realize that you can't afford to give. That in spite of your intent, there's just no money there. Or maybe even more sadly, you come to that place and you realize it's not so much that you can't afford it. It's just that you don't want to. You'd rather spend it on what you want. And that's borne out. In all the statistical data that you read today about what's happening in our country, charitable giving is going like this. And this past year, according to Barna, charitable giving in the church reached an all-time low since they've begun keeping that statistic. And so you go, well, well, why? Well, it's kind of what I said in the beginning. Money has never been generosity has never been an issue of dollars. It's always been an issue of heart. Matthew 5, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we talked about this a few months ago. We talked about trying to locate our heart and that your heart is where your treasure is. So how do you find your treasure? Well, a few weeks ago when we were on our elder retreat, we heard a message from Tim Keller and he talked about the way to, to find out where you're, what it is that you treasure, what it is that really gives to you a sense of your own identity is where does money flow effortlessly? What, what do you easily spend money on? And Keller said in his life that he never really believed that he was particularly physically attractive, so he wasn't going to find his identity and his appearance. He realized he didn't have any uh, wonderful athletic skills, so he wasn't going to find any sense of himself or his identity in any of those things. So he realized it's going to be in my intellect. And if you know Tim Keller, he, he's succeeded in that. He's like a brilliantly smart man. So he said, what's going to distinguish me and give me my identity? I'm going to be smart. I'm going to be known as a person who knows things. Therefore, in his life, money flows effortlessly toward books. He said he can pass a bookstore. Actually, he can't pass a bookstore. He has to go in. And he just just buys books. And it's easy. Now, if you ask him to spend money on clothes or a car, he's going to object. right? Because that's not where he finds his identity. And so let me just ask you to think about it right now in your life. Where does money flow effortlessly? It's just not hard to spend money on these things because whatever that is, is something that you're depending on to give you a sense of yourself, your identity, your your internal sense of confidence, and it's, it's where your heart is. So if that's true, And we realize today, here we are sitting in church, that what the gospel has told us is that our identity has been given to us by God in Christ, that the redeeming work of God in Christ on the cross to give his life for us in order that we might be saved, that that tells us that we're his beloved, we're his sons and his daughters, and that's what gives us our identity. If that is in case the reality and that fills our hearts, then should the church not be on the receiving end of money that effortlessly flows in our direction. It's just easy for you all to pour money into the church so the kingdom of God can be built. And I will say with 100% certainty, there are some of you this morning and you're absolutely like that. Money effortlessly flows from your life into the life of the church. And I, I love you for that. But in general, we would say that, you know, remember, only 40% of the members of our church make a financial contribution. And so I don't know if you felt as challenged as I did in verse 7, but Paul says, see to it that you also excel in this grace of giving. So Paul doesn't say when you're in Christian community, when you're in the life of the church, and I'll get to that in a second, but when God in Christ fills your life, you should be awesome at financial giving. And that's what Paul's talking about. This is not about giving your time, it's not about giving your talents, about giving your money, pure and simple. And he says, we should be really good at it. We should excel at how financially generous you are. So Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthian church, and what we often don't know or maybe misunderstand is as he was going from church to church, he was taking up an offering. He was asking these different churches to give money in support of the poorer churches in Judea and Jerusalem. And I know this may surprise you, but the church in Jerusalem was likely the poorest of the churches in that New Testament era of the church's life because Jerusalem was such a divided city. There was so much conflict and turmoil there. She was very, very poor. So Paul went around and he was collecting money so that he could give it to the poor churches, believing that that was such a sign of a unity and the oneness that, that the church isn't just one individual local church like First President. But we as a church are connected to the larger one church of Jesus Christ, capital C, and we are. So if The church, capital C, as she moves out of this pandemic time, if we're going to grow and thrive and continue to be vibrant, it requires both people and money. And so it's a little odd, don't you think, when you hear the description of the Macedonian church? If it were me, if I was Paul and I needed money for the poor churches, I'd go to the affluent churches, right? Like I'd go to First President Orlando and I'd say, hey, there are some churches in the Bahamas, you know, down there, and we're trying to get them started, and they don't have a lot, we need to support them. And first press, as we have done, we go, "Great, we'll, we'll be supportive of that." But instead, Paul says, "Let me tell you about these Macedonian churches." And in verse two, it says, "Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And you go, wait, what? So they're, they're circumstantially suffering, which means it could be any number of things. Maybe there's been a severe drought. There's a crop failure. They're hungry. Maybe there is a hurricane or a natural, we don't know, but circumstantially it's bad. Life is really hard. And then in addition to that, they're
1: not just poor, they're extremely poor. They don't have anything. And, and yet Paul says,
0: they were incredibly generous. And I think it's hard for us to wrap our 21st century American brains around that kind of life. And so I'm gonna show you a video. that lasts three minutes, so stay with it. And it's about a church in Northeast India uh, among the people of Mazoram. And again, we saw this, our elders
1: saw this on our retreat just a few weeks ago, and I wanted to show it to you. Well, that's wonderful. Despite-
2: and later gather it and offer it to the church the church in turn sells the rice and generates income to support its work rice has been the staple food of the people of mizoram you are giving what is basic essential fundamental to your life you are sharing that with god <laughs> With the passage of time, people have given more than rice, vegetables, firewood, cereals, and their regular tithes, empowering the church to be self-sufficient. Mizoram State is the most backward state in India. And we are the poorest of the poor. But still, we can raise funds for the ministry of the Lord. At the close of this last fiscal year, we received altogether around 13 million U.S. dollars. Out of that, 12% of our total income is from the handful of rice collection. With 1,800 missionaries in India and many overseas, the Mizoram Church is known as a missionary church world over. This success is attributed to their selfless and creative giving. It is not our richness or our poverty that make us serve the Lord, but our willingness. So, we Mizou people say, as long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give to God every day.
0: modern day. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's the Macedonian church, the poorest of the poor. They're in the poorest part of India. And I I hope you got that number. Last year, their little cup of ice campaign generated 13 million U.S. dollars. Now, if your mind is not sufficiently blown, you're not paying attention you go, how how does that happen? How did it happen in the
1: Macedonian churches? And, oh, by the way, could that happen at First Presbyterian Church of Orlando? I wonder. And I think the answer to how it happened is contained in how Paul
0: describes them. And, And the first thing, the most important thing is this, generosity The generosity of our lives, the financial generosity of our lives is grounded in and dependent on how deeply we understand the grace of God. What God has lavished on us, the riches God has poured out into our lives. Notice that Paul does not begin by saying, oh my gosh, let me tell you about the Macedonian offering. They
1: gave us all this money. Can you believe it? It's not how he starts. Verse 1. He says, we want you to know
0: about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. We want you to know how deeply grace has been poured out on these people. The evidence of their understanding of that grace is their generosity, but they really understand how deeply God loves them. The redeeming work of Christ his sacrificial death on the cross, everything about what God has lavished on them. They get it in such a way that it's changed and transformed who they are as God's people. The grace of God is deep within them. It's the first thing that Paul wants them to know. But even even then, you go, well, how how did they do that? And the answer was, was so simple. If if they had food, they'd just take a little bit of that and they'd set it aside. And that cumulative effort grew and became multiplied such that they became a church that was known for their missionary service, for their sending. John Stott writes this, how easily our comfortable Western culture can deaden our sensitivity to others' needs. The Macedonians had no such comfort and no such lure of personal satisfaction. Their values are entirely different. So because the grace of God had captured their heart, it had shaped their heart. Their hearts had been conditioned with completely different values. See, what we've been conditioned as a culture to believe is that individuals. What I want, what I desire, that's the most important thing. And so I need to spend my money primarily on what satisfies me, on what pleases me. And so the culture shapes my values. But the church and God through his scriptures is trying to shape our hearts in a completely different way. The Macedonians and the people in mizoram they had no such illusion that there were ever going to be any material things at all that could satisfy them in any way. So they were always shaped and formed towards
1: what they could experience in their relationship with God. So what is it that is shaping our
0: hearts today? In the church, we've said, we want. To, that's why we have these six banners hanging in here. We've said we want to value things differently than the way our culture does. And yes, one of them is relentless generosity. But we're generous, why? So that we can love our city well. We can love our community so that we can love our church family and help you meet the needs of your life when those things come into being. We want to be so touched by what God has poured out into our lives by his grace that we value things differently than the world that we value what it is to extend the kingdom and to help and serve others as God has helped and served us. It's all built on grace. And then secondly, and this this is something that I've read this text hundreds of times at least, and I've never seen this before. Your generosity is actually a test of the sincerity and the depth of your faith in Jesus. I never knew that. Maybe you did, but listen to verses eight and nine. Paul says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. This is what changed the Macedonian church. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor.
1: So that you through his poverty might become rich. So Paul's saying, I'm not going to command this, I'm not,
0: I'm not forcing this. But it is a test. It does tell me something in comparison to other people about how deeply formed your heart has been in Christ or not. James 2:18 said, Faith without works is dead. And so We know that what we do has nothing to do with our salvation. We're not saved by our works. However, we know there is something that is a corresponding truth that if we confess Christ and he comes to live in us, then our life and our behavior will reflect his presence in us in some way. We'll begin to behave, i.e. works. We'll begin to behave in ways that people go, oh, well, clearly Christ must live Within them, in that same Keller talk we were listening to as our elders were on retreat, he talked about how this shows up in Acts chapter 20. When Paul in Acts 20 is leaving the Ephesian elders, so he's planted that church, been with them for three years, they're leaving, and he's never gonna see them again. So the world then doesn't work the way the world works today, they're leaving, he's not ever gonna see them. So think about that. If you were leaving someone that you deeply loved and you were never gonna see him again, what are you gonna tell them? You're gonna tell them the most important things. You're gonna tell them the things that you want them to hang on, the things you want them to build their lives on. And so what does Paul say in verse 32? He says, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. What's the word of his grace? The gospel. He's leaving and he says, I commit you to the gospel. This is your call. This is your purpose And then he concludes that I commit you to the gospel remembering that it's more blessed to give than to receive. So he says, "I'm, I'm commending to you, I'm committing you to the gospel. And the most important way in which the gospel is manifest in your life is that you recognize you ought to spend way more time giving than you are receiving because that's more important. So Keller said of that, Paul commits them to the gospel and then tells them the evidence of the gospel in you will be to live as Jesus said, to be givers first, to be
1: generous to the extent that if you're not giving, then one can fairly ask, is Christ really in you? Wow. See, I'd, I'd like to say, no, it's, it's not that severe. But I, I, I look at verse eight and I, I can't disagree with that. If, if we're not generous
0: and we look at the way that God in Christ who was rich for our sakes became poor so that in him we might become rich. If he really lives in us and we're not generous, then I think it's a fair question to say, does Christ really live in you? Because see, the people in Macedonia got it. They were described as people overflowing with joy. Why? Why? because their hearts had been shaped according to different values. They valued the things of God, which well up as joy. What is joy? It's the knowledge that regardless of your circumstances, God is at work. God's ultimately going to be glorified, and you exist to accomplish his purposes. And so you love to see those purposes come to fruition. You live for it. But our hearts have been conditioned to satisfy self, so we're way more conditioned towards making ourselves happy. Happiness and joy, not the same thing. Happiness based on your happenings. So we try to fulfill with circumstantial things like trips and items and and things we can acquire that will satisfy us and please us. And all the while we're focused on that. We may be happy for a season, but we don't know what joy is. But see, the people of Macedonia and the people of Mazorum, they were overflowing even in their poverty with joy, because their values were according to what God wants in the world. And the fact that they were a part of it, as Jack said in the offering, that we're partnering together for this greater thing to the extent, here's the next mind-blowing verse, in verse four, (laughs) I love this. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. People, I'm still waiting on that phone call. I can't wait to get it. When someone says, oh, David, please, please
1: let me give more to the church. I don't want to miss out on the joy of the kingdom work that's happening there. I want in.
0: What do we we tend to say we want in for? We we read the Wall Street Journal and we go,
1: I want in on that investment we ought to be like the Macedonians saying, God, I want in on your kingdom things. Megan Hill
0: in her book, A Place to Belong said this, this is a responsibility. I'm almost done. This is a responsibility. And you know, when a pastor says he's almost done, that means nothing, right? (laughs) Okay. This is a responsibility for every member of Christ's church. Our money turns on the lights, opens the doors, feeds and clothes and sends gospel preachers, purchases Bibles, makes copies and coffee, and assists people in need. Our resources are God-given as seeds for sowing. And when we give, we also partner with gospel workers in self-denial. Paul sacrificed much for the sake of Christ. By your gifts, denying yourself treats and comforts even basic necessities. You come alongside men and women who do the same every single day so that Christ might be proclaimed. And this precious partnership of sacrificial giving belongs to both rich and poor. This idea of sacrificial giving is not just for the wealthy because you know what? It's harder for wealthy people to actually give at a sacrificial level right? It's much easier for poor people to give at a sacrificial level in that sense. And I think, but what do I know of self-denial? Again, it's just not how we're trained. So Lee and I are, or let me rephrase, I am working on our taxes right now. And, um, and so I'm, I'm almost finished. And this year, Lee and I gave 12.5% of our pre-tax income to First Presbyterian Church. So we grew by 1% over last year in terms of our generosity. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. There are times when I fantasize about taking a year off and what I would do with that money. And I think, man, Lord, can I, would you just let me spend that money this year? Because man, I would love some new irons and I'd like to use them on a trip. And maybe I'll take
1: Lee and it'll be, It'll be fun, (laughs) right? I, I just imagine if I could just take that money and just, Lord, just one year, let me spend it on me. Sinfully, I'm just telling you, I think about that. But then I realize at the same time, if I did that, I would not have the same sense of connection and partnership. I would
0: not have the same joy that I feel in watching what the Spirit is doing at First Presbyterian Church because I'd be disconnected. I'm not a partner in it. But then when I think about my self-denial,
1: <laughs> my little 12.5% compared to the Macedonians, compared to the people in Mizoram in India, I don't know anything about self-denial,
0: but but here's what I think we can do. And this is what I'm going to ask. And I'm especially talking to those of you who right now, for whatever reason, you're not giving. And I hope you feel a sense of conviction in watching that video and learning about Mazorum, those of you who are giving nothing, and you say, well, it's just a time in my life where I can't afford to right now. I've got all these financial things. You know what? I think you can give a cup of rice. I think even in our poverty, even in our financial hardship, and there are actually several families in our church who are already doing this, where they have a jar in their kitchen, it says cup of rice. And every day, what do they do? They put a dollar in. And at the end of the month, they bring that to the church. And just think with me for a second. If 40% of our members give, let's say we got another 30% just to do a cup of rice. And, And let's just conservatively say, Even the poorest among you could give a dollar a day and you put that in a jar. So that's $30 a month. That's $360 a year. I'm bad at math, but I think that's right. $360 a year times 500 more families. And all of a sudden generosity in the church looks completely different. And we are now enabled to do kingdom things we've never been able to do before. And, And on top of that, guess what? All of you who have been taking the dollar and now you're connected. Now you're participating in this ministry and you're gonna know joy in a way that you'd never know it otherwise. If you hadn't started to take part and partner because your heart got reshaped by the grace of God and what he's lavished on you. And then I can even imagine another day when we'll start a whole cup of rice thing at First Press where I'm gonna ask you for a month to just set aside a cup of rice every day, whatever that is. And at the end of the month, you bring whatever that is and we're gonna give that wherever the spirit has led us to give it. We're gonna make a big difference because of the cup of rice that we're gonna
1: do. So I just think it's it's something that's so easy and so possible, so practical and tangible. I know we can do that. And I pray that we will
0: Not because I'm standing up here asking you. Paul said that. I'm not gonna command you to do it. But it is something that reveals the depth of Christ in us. Are we growing up to be a generous people? We will when we've been deeply touched and changed
1: and shaped by the lavish nature of the grace of God poured into our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, thank
0: you for this morning. Thank you for the vibrant
1: worship of your people. And Lord, I'm thankful for a a small town in Northeast India that had so much to teach us this morning.
0: In fact, it's so much that it's hard for us to really even wrap our brains around because they've just been shaped in a way that we haven't. They know life and they know you in a way that we do not.
1: But Lord, we can grow as the gospel, as the grace of you, our God, touches our
0: hearts. Lord, would you pour your grace into us the way you did into the Macedonian people, into the Mazorum people, so that maybe some people who've never given anything might just take a dollar a day and say, all right, Lord, I'm I'm gonna meet you at your word and see if you will not give me what is beyond happiness but the joy of partnering with you for the
1: sake of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.